John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. That's why we're gathered here today. Because our Lord rose on Sunday and immediately the church began to worship together on Sunday. They quickly abandoned Saturday worship and started meeting on Sunday to worship the Lord. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and told the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have taken him. So a few things in this. Often, Mary Magdalene uh, has a reputation as a prostitute assigned to her that the scripture never teaches us about. Okay, uh, The first element is Mary Magdalene, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 2, Mary called Magdalene out of whom had come seven demons. Okay, So she probably at some point in her life was a very unpleasant individual to hang out with, to say the least. Right? She was demonically possessed, but she was never a prostitute according to the scripture. We don't find that anywhere. That you know, tradition comes from the Roman Catholic institution. Some of the things that may have added to that confusion, I just want to get her in the proper light, in the proper focus for us here. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 39, tell us, then one of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, prostitute is what we're talking about there, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask to, uh, of fragrant oil to him, stood at his feet, behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with a fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who, what, who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for he is a sinner, literally prostitute is what he's saying. So then jump forward, stay with me, class, to John chapter 12. Beginning at verse 1, we read, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, separate location, separate time, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So we get Mary, and then a different Mary, and then a different woman anointing with oil. And if you don't study carefully, you ball those all together, and you come up with a person that uh, isn't in the Scripture. You're combining three different individuals to get someone that the Scripture doesn't speak of. These are three different people. So you can take the time and study it. What I'm really trying to get at is, Mary Magdalene deeply loves Jesus because her life was a ruinous mess. 
She was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus Christ delivered her from that. You know, to what degree was that? Now, there's some interesting thought process in that, right? We, we hear Jesus saying that if someone is possessed and they have the demon cast out of them and they have their body, their mind, their heart, their house, as it's described, swept clean and set in order, but unoccupied, meaning the Holy Spirit has not taken up residence in them, then the demon comes back, finding the house unoccupied, goes and finds seven like unto himself, and repossesses the individual. Their end result is worse than their beginning. Um, some of you may be sitting there right now thinking, I, I think I've experienced that. You know, some degree of that. No. Have you said of your addiction, I'm going to clean this out. I'm going to put myself in order. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. And you get rid of things. But when it comes back, it's much worse than it was previously. Right? The problem, the habit is more overwhelming than it was the first time. When we finally have Jesus Christ cleanse our person, and occupy our heart, we have a deep gratitude for Jesus, who he is and what he has done. There's such a profound change in our person. And now there, at the beginning of this, uh, we are told that while it was still dark, she went to the tomb. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 9 says, With my soul I have desired you in the night, yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. And when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Uh, being a person who rises early and starts the day in the word of God will change your world. That, that will change the world. And in fact, it will change the world that is around you. If you set your day in order... With Jesus Christ, you know, the rest of the day falls in line even when it's chaotic. And if, if you are a person who gets up and just immediately launches into the day, very often what you discover is as your day blows up in your face and you're trying to sort it out, it's very difficult to find Jesus in the chaos. When he has spoken to you beforehand and then the chaos starts to unleash very often your experience is, well, the Lord told me something like this was coming. I was prepared for this. Even though I didn't know I was prepared for this, somehow I am prepared for this. This, this woman is rising early to go and meet Jesus, also meaning that she probably was observant of the Sabbath, right? She had not ventured out, not gone to the tomb the day before. She was seeking the Lord the day before. And now seeking Him while it is still dark. Which, again, let's address the issue of that tradition. Uh, we have a, a number of um, churches and denominations that worship on Good Friday. And I think that's really cool. But uh, then if you uh, hold adamantly to the tradition of Good Friday then you have to do weird things to dismiss the Scripture because the Scripture tells us that Jesus was going to be three days and three nights in the earth, right? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. 
And if if you're saying, well, Jesus died on Good Friday, and they put him in the tomb Friday evening, so that before the Sabbath begins, as sunsets, then he's in the tomb. So then you you have to reconstruct your calendar and go, okay, well, they must have got him in the tomb early Friday, late in the afternoon. Therefore, that counts as one day. This is literally the reason it comes into play. And then he was in the tomb all day Saturday. That's, you know, a second day. And then, you know, he resurrected on Sunday morning. So that would have been the third day is, is how that goes. Well, it very specifically says that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will Jesus be in the earth or in the heart of the earth. Now, here's here's how this works. The... Uh, manipulation is because it says that the next day they're crucifying Jesus and the next day was the Sabbath day. So they're saying that has to have been Saturday. So they're trying to get him in the tomb, you know, biblically uh, somehow on Friday. But the bottom line is the Sabbath that they're referring to was Passover. So any day, any religious holiday that they held, that was also a day of rest, a Sabbath. So, so when they're putting him into the tomb, and then he's going to be in the tomb three days, three nights. So let's just work that backwards, right? Because uh, the day ends at sunset, okay? So that means the last course of the day, three days and three nights that Jesus was in the tomb, was Saturday night because he was resurrected Sunday morning while it was still dark. Otherwise, we've got to include that as part of his having been in the tomb. So it's she arrives while it's still dark, right? Because as soon as sunset happens, that's the end of the day, okay? So she can go out after the Sabbath has ended. She goes out in the dark and finds Jesus has already been resurrected. So forget Sunday. That's not part of the three days and the three nights. Let's go back to Saturday. Saturday night, Saturday morning, Friday night, Friday morning, Thursday night, Thursday morning, you come to Wednesday night, they bury him. Interestingly enough, when you look at the calendar on the year that Jesus was crucified, Sabbath falls on a Wednesday, or on, on a, the uh, Passover falls on a uh, Wednesday, so that they're, they're preparing, rather, on Wednesday for the Sabbath, which begins on Thursday. So Jesus died on Good Wednesday. Again, if you go to a Good Friday service or you celebrate Good Friday, fine. Just understand that you can't start to try and reconstruct the calendar or the Word of God to make it fit your religious tradition. If you start doing that, well, then you have to start doing that to the rest of the Bible. Things that don't fit conveniently for you because you've got a certain tradition. Then you start tearing the word of God apart. You start tearing apart history. You start tearing apart truth is what you start tearing apart. So I don't have any need. You don't have any need to argue with people, right? You don't have to, again, you know, show up at local churches and protest Good Friday services. That's not, not where we're at. What I'm, what I'm saying to you is that when you read the word and people start to do all these gymnastics to try and make the Bible fit the traditions of the church, the best thing to let go of is the traditions of the church. 
because all throughout history, uh, the traditions of the church have been warping the word of God. So holding on to the word and what is said here, also we looked at the fact that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Now we're going to see in just a moment that Jesus disappeared out of the grave clothes that he was buried in. We're going to turn the pages if you continue to study these accounts and you're going to discover that Jesus just appears in rooms. Doors locked, windows locked because they're afraid of the Romans and the religious leaders. And Jesus just appears in the room, teaches them, has a conversation, and then disappears from the room. He's no longer confined by creation as he had been previously. Jesus has already gone from the tomb. The stone has been rolled out of the way so that, number one, Mary can see in the tomb. Secondly, Peter and John can see in the tomb. Continuing, the other apostles follow further. All of us get to look in the tomb today. The stone is rolled out of the way for believers. Not Jesus, right? It's significant. Jesus is not confined by men's imprisonment. How many times have you talked to people and they say things like, well, when I think about God, I more think of Him like this. Well, who cares how you think of Him? All right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you run into somebody uh, and start talking about me, Will Cass, and they say, I know Will Cass. You say, really? No kidding. You say, yeah, he's this huge Hispanic guy. He's, you know, and they start describing something that isn't me. You can be like, no, you don't know the Will Cass I know, right? Many people say that. I, I, oh, I know God. And, you know, when I think about God, he's more like this. He's more like that. They've created their own God in their head. It doesn't matter what you think about God. The point is, what has God revealed to humanity about himself? He's moved the stones out of the way and said, look right here at this location in history and time and geography and examine what is here and what is not here. Jesus Christ is gone. The question is raised later, right? The angels who say, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? And that's what a lot of the critics are doing. They're trying to dig up all the graves. You know, anything that has the name Jesus on it, they dig a hole in the ground and try to find Jesus. You know, common the name of Jesus was in this day and time. It was like John or Dave. I mean, you're going to be digging up a lot of graves. There's lots of Jesuses buried all over. Uh, those that don't believe are not going to believe because their heart has not been converted. Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, has found Peter after Peter's denial of knowing Jesus. And throughout this, he often refers to himself as the other disciple. It has a tone of humility, okay? But we're going to see, right? He also makes sure you know that he outran the old man too, right? He, 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 he keeps himself secretive because the persecution is still very heavy when he writes this book. So he doesn't reveal very directly who it is that he's referring to. Many of these people have already died. So as these accounts are written, it's not as impactful on them, obviously. Upon himself, he's still living, so he's sort of obscuring himself a little bit. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, 
and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. The other disciple, again, John, referring to himself, outran Peter, you know, just to tell us that the, uh, you know, the teenager could outrun the 45-year-old man. Well, uh, who cares, you know? Big deal. Humility and human pride often seen. They came to the tomb. For, he came to the tomb first. He, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Probably um, out of some sense of fear, not so much of the supernatural, probably just over the fact that it was a grave. You consider, uh, most people have sort of a fearful hesitancy around tombstones and graves, not overly excited to go inside crypts and experience these things. Um, the sarcophagus, as this is referred to, um, it sounds sort of sacred to us. To them, the term sarcophagus literally meant rotter. Like, you know, your crisper drawer in your refrigerator. Just everything you put in there somehow gets lost and decays. So it is with these. Uh, there were probably a couple of shelves for bodies in this sarcophagus. Uh, this was a very expensive tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea that he had allowed Jesus to be buried in. They would place the body on the shelf with all of the spices and anointing oil, and it would decompose to dust. There was a shelf at the end of that shelf where they would place a stone box and literally just take a board and scrape all of the bones and dust down into the box. Sounds like a pleasant job, right? Arrange them all neatly, seal that box, and then set it inside that tomb or sarcophagus, and then put the next body or bodies on shelves, and they would decompose. You'll remember Jesus' whole discussion about the Pharisees being like whitewashed tombs, because most of the time these sarcophagus were just cut into the stone like a cave. And so they would whitewash the outside very brilliant white, because as millions of people came to Jerusalem to worship as part of the Jewish religion, they would end up just camping all over the countryside. And, you know, if you find a nice cave to camp in while you're there for the religious ceremony, that was helpful, unless, of course, it was a sarcophagus. Because now you're camping with dead bodies, which is always unpleasant. You know, they would whitewash them to help people avoid from being defiled. If you've come to the uh, city to worship the Lord and you end up in someone's tomb accidentally, you know, arrive there in the middle of the night, find a good cave, think you're going to camp out there, wake up in the morning and you're sleeping with the dead, you don't get to participate in any of the religious activities. So your whole trip is nullified in the process. So here, this hesitancy of John is probably at least to a certain degree, from the fact that that's a tomb and I don't want anything to do with it. I've arrived, I can see in, I can see the grave clothes lying right there. I don't need to defile myself 
by going into the tomb. So he sees uh, inside, looking inside, the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb and saw. This word saw is different. It isn't just looked upon. It's a matter of discerning. And it's the mental and spiritual understanding. The linen clothes lying there. He, he discerned the linen clothes lying there. He spiritually and mentally discerned them. Why the distinction in language? Because the way it's going to be described even in more detail is the fact that the linen clothes are laid out in the shape that they were in when Jesus was tied into them. Nothing is disturbed. So, so this that would be really creepy. If you arrive, right, and you know, go with the modern theory. There's the casket. That's creepy enough. Open the thing up, and there's the suit and the shoes and everything that they were dressed in just laid out exactly like their wedding band is laying right there, their watch there. That would be creepy. Peter discerns. And in it, the discernment is resurrection. His understanding is sparked with, this is a supernatural event. This is not grave robbers, right? Jesus had nothing to steal, number one. And two, grave robbers of this day generally didn't disturb the body. It was the articles that were put in with the body that they wanted. So, so if they put... Uh, you know, items of value that were sacred in with the body, then they would take those items. The body wasn't disturbed. The clothes are laying right where they had placed Jesus, and they are in the shape of the body. Jesus has disappeared out of that shroud all at once. So that is very disturbing. It says, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in uh, in a place by itself. Now, again, I'm not one who uh, insists that the Shroud of Torin is in fact the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, but uh, my strongest suspicion is that it is. Uh, there, there are many things about it that are really, really remarkable. I think most significantly, there are dozens of miracles that are associated with the shroud throughout history. Uh, the shroud was collected, uh, figuratively they say it was taken and put into the care of the early church leaders and it's been handed down throughout time. And uh, now it's uh, been in several museums and been examined by many different bodies of scientists. Uh, here's, here's the thing. That shroud, two parts... Okay, it, there is a head covering, handkerchief, as just described here, and there is also the full-length shroud. The, uh, the shroud, in case you're not familiar with it, long piece of cloth where the body would be laid at one end, and they would fold the other end over the head down to the feet, and then they would tie, they would fold it very carefully around the neck and the shoulders and all the way down the sides, they would tie at the bottom uh, so that it was a bundle, and then they would tie around the ankles, around the knees, around the hips, around the elbows, the hands, all the way up to the neck. So it isn't mummification, 
like the Egyptians did. It's simply an encasement that they would put the body in. They would put flowers and ointment in around the body and pack it this way. The Shroud of Turin, uh, kept as it was, was delivered on a dozen or more occasions to people that were sick. So leaders of the church, the request would come, uh, could you bring the shroud to a person that was deathly ill? Bring it. As soon as the shroud is laid upon them, they are completely healed. Happened over and over again throughout history. Uh, Several of the people that the shroud was set upon and the head covering, also on two occasions I'm aware of, was set upon, uh, were so sick that they had lost consciousness uh, in one case uh, hours earlier, in another case uh, almost a day earlier. They had passed out. They, they were dying, not going to recover. As soon as the shroud touches their body, they're fully restored to health, uh, up, working, walking around, completely made well. Um, you know, tough to try and say with any exact Uh, certainty that this is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. But again, interesting. Some other details about the shroud that are remarkable. Um, Initially, as they were examining the image that is on the shroud, they thought that it was staining from the liquefaction and decomposition. But what they discovered was that the body had not decomposed that the body inside, the image they were looking at, was a burn on all of the fabric. So close examination reveals to them that it's a radiation burn from an unknown light source. So you wrestle with that for all that you want to. And the radiation burn from an unknown light source has only scorched the very surface of the fabric, which is incredibly hard to do okay? uh, without penetrating the fabric whatsoever. It has scorched just the surface, one plane of each of the wound fabrics that this cloth is made up from. Initially, the drawings that are made centuries ago, uh, a very gaunt, thin depiction of Jesus is made. In recent history, they take images of this and load them into a computer where they're going to try to model it. And what they discover is that it is already a three-dimensional image that that very easily, without any effort at all, translates into a 3D model of this individual. There's some confusion in the imagery at first until they discover there's two different levels of burns in it. And they're able to easily separate the two levels of burns that are in it. What's most significant about that is one is an external image of the individual that was wrapped in this cloth. The second one is an x-ray. It's a skeletal image of the person that was inside this cloth. And they can separate the two and look at the skeletal image from the external image that was in this thing. So, you know, medical imagery. Have you ever looked into it before? Shot of turn, any of that stuff? 
there's there's a new one that's been done in the late 90s. So um, <clears throat> really interesting. Uh, you know, one of the questions that was posed is, you know, if this was God, if this was Jesus, and the imaging was done this way, um, what would be the significance of rendering the external image and the internal x-ray of the image? Well, one of the things that was verified is none of the bones in this individual were broken. Fulfilling prophecy, right, that Jesus, uh, none of his bones would be broken in it. Um, the individual who was buried within this cloth was scourged. Uh, they were also crucified, and a uh, crown of thorns was embedded in their head. All of those wounds are present uh, for, on the individual that was in the shroud. Coins placed upon the eyes, which was common uh, for several centuries, but uh, in this case, uh, bore the year that Jesus was crucified, which clearly couldn't have been done before that, which some of the people who are critics of the shroud say, um, you know, it's much older or it's much newer. Well, the coins tell you that it had to have at least happened, you know, sometime after the dates on uh, Jesus' eyes. So you can do uh, further examination, the pollination of the flowers uh, that were embedded around the body. Uh, only harvested from uh, Jerusalem at that time of year. Some of them no longer grow uh, there in Jerusalem uh, now. They've, uh, the pollination hasn't occurred. So point being, this shroud, this cloth, lying in the exact form of Jesus, was still in the tomb. Handkerchief that had been around his head, now lying uh, uh, not with the linen clothes, but folded together, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, it's so interesting the way John uh, does that, humility and then, you know, bragging seemingly, went in also and saw and believed. I mean, you got to understand that what they're referring to is seeing the linen clothes caused Peter to believe. Seeing the linen clothes caused John to believe uh, that that's going to be a pretty powerful statement when you when you show up and it's laid out exactly as it was the last time you saw Jesus now in its same form but Jesus is not inside it this speaks volumes to them for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead it's so interesting that they did not recognize it from the Old Testament, nor hear it from Jesus' own mouth, though he said it repeatedly to them. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So, you know, this whole thing that we're seeing here uh, leaves them in this place of examining and understanding. Uh, they didn't understand, but the disciples later remember the Pharisees, remember, Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, uh, it says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Um, so they don't follow it exactly, obviously. They manipulate the situation. Point being this, um, you might not remember 
the things that the Lord has said to you that you need to remember until you need to remember. Okay? And the enemies of your faith may remember things that were said and throw them back in your face. Uh, don't be concerned about that. Uh, you know, here, uh, that deceiver said he would rise from the dead. Right? They also said, right, Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and then he would rebuild it in three days. They're remembering things and using them inappropriately. You know, you go online, you see the critics, you read the forums, and here's this guy who doesn't believe at all. He's quoting the scripture and quoting the scripture and quoting the scripture and quoting the scripture, and yet he doesn't know the Lord at all, right? And you feel inferior, right? Because you're trying to walk in your faith and you're going like, what was that verse? What was that? You, you know what I'm saying? Don't worry about that, okay? These are Jesus Christ's disciples, and they can't remember right now. And if you compare them against the false teachers and the false religious leaders, they remember everything. Who cares? Point is, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you submitted? So don't be discouraged in that. Verse 11, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. So come to the tomb. Body's gone. Tomb's open. Go get John and Peter. They race on ahead. They see what they want to. They leave. Mary comes back now to the tomb, heart broken over this whole thing. Stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked in the tomb. Now listen, um, have you had the occasion where the Lord uses a certain person in your life and then the Lord remo removes a certain person from your life? And you're sort of left feeling like, I don't know if I can walk with the Lord anymore. Mary's perspective is that her connection with God is Jesus, and Jesus is gone. She's heartbroken over this, right? The Lord may touch your life through someone else, and then someone like that might be taken out of your life. Know this, the Lord's never taken out of your life. He's always with you. He's always caring for you. So she's weeping, looking down saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Okay, so what's your reaction if you look in the tomb and there's two angels? You're probably going to be completely freaked out, right? What is the most common greeting from angels throughout the Bible when human beings have encounters with them, right? Fear not, right? <laughs> Do not be afraid. Why? Because there's an angel in the room, you know? It just freaks everybody out. Notice Mary's reaction. It's not like that. She's not overwhelmed. She looks in, sees one, two angels. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Uh, listen, you guys. Her reaction is, I need Jesus. Uh, angels are present. Great. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for showing up. But I'm looking for Jesus. Oh, there's an important lesson. All right? I'm not just stabbing at the humor here. Right? Uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 17 says, Of Christians that signs will follow those who believe. Signs will follow. Right? It doesn't say, as a believer, follow signs. It says signs will follow those who believe. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Maybe you've never read it this way before. Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. We do not want to be people who are looking for signs. Angels, so what? I'm looking for Jesus. She's unimpressed by this. Look, when you've been as close with Jesus as this woman has been, then anything less than Jesus is meaningless. That's where she's at with this. That's the reality of where she's at. They said to her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around. Early church leaders taught that the angels signaled her to turn around. If you can grasp that picture, right? You know, what are you looking for? Jesus. And they're like, mm, you know, <laughs> right behind you, right there. Is sort of, that's literally how the early church leaders taught. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that, they're saying that that's why this is written this way. That she turned around, uh, signaled to them <laughs> in this way. Um, uh, lost my place. Turn around. Uh, when she had said this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. So reasons he may not have been recognized. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 16. Now behold, two of them. Uh, then you jump down uh, verse 18, one of whose name was Cleopas. I've got words for that guy when I meet him. They were traveling that same day to the village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But, his, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Okay, Mary doesn't recognize him. Others didn't recognize him. Uh, Cleopas listens to Jesus teach from Genesis all the way to Malachi, every occasion that referred to Jesus in the Old Testament, and he doesn't record any of it for us. So that guy's got more to answer for than just the fact that he didn't recognize him. Verse, uh, John chapter 20, verse 20, um, then when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He shows them the wounds either in his hand or in his wrists, and then the sword piercing of his side. John chapter 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach your fingers here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Uh, point being, if Jesus has the scars from the crucifixion of the nail piercings and the sword in his side, perhaps he has all of the scarring from the beating and the scourging and the ripping his beard out. Maybe, maybe he bears all of the wounds. Even if he's been healed, maybe he bears the scars. Jump forward to Revelation. John, seeing Jesus on the throne, says, I looked upon him, and he was as a lamb that had been slaughtered. It's, it's possible that he's so marred uh, that, that he's not recognized. Some people say, well, I don't, really, I don't like that. You know, I want Jesus to be beautiful. Look, when you have the full understanding of every one of those scars, he is mine. He took those for me. He took those because of me. 
that puts that in a very beautiful perspective. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Small woman carrying a large man and more than 100 pounds of spikenard. Uh, I mean, that's dedication right there. Just tell me where he is. I'll go find him, and I'll take care of the body on her own. She's that determined. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Uh, she recognized him in the personal address, right? The tone that she'd heard many, many times before that only belonged to Jesus speaking to her. Might have been deeply affectionate. Might have been... Um, corrective as a teacher. We don't know what it was, but it was the thing that sparked her mind to understand who she was talking to. So here's a thought, you guys. You may be sitting here right now not recognizing that Jesus Christ is with you right now. She's with Jesus and doesn't recognize that. How does she recognize him? In the personal address. I can tell you right now that Jesus Christ will reveal himself to you if you will ask. If you, if you will ask him to speak to you and reveal it. might not happen in this room. It might happen in the days that are following. But you've got to understand that Jesus Christ is, is presently resurrected. And he is always in your proximity, uh, speaking to you, available to speak to you, but you must call out to him. You've got to long for him. You've got to look for him. A little more. Uh, I should be done by 2.30, so let's just move right along. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, <coughs> to my God and your God. Uh, this statement of do not cling to me, uh, it, some have made a really warped sense of things about how Jesus is pure. He's been resurrected and Mary's somehow going to defile him. That, again, emerges mostly from the Roman Catholic Church. Jesus is not opposed to being touched. Okay, We've already read John chapter 20, verse 27, where he says to Thomas, Reach your fingers here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put, put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You can touch me. Okay, what you're seeing is Jesus was the deepest love in Mary's life. And Jesus died in front of her eyes and was buried. He's gone. Now he's back. She's clinging to him in such a way that she's never going to let him go again. And Jesus' response to her is to say, I'm going to be here a while. I'm not, I haven't ascended to my father yet. I'm, I have earthly ministry to do. Uh, so you don't, have, you don't have to cling to me in this way because I'm going to be available to you in the days to come. Uh, so there's an encouragement in that for us also. 18, we'll just close this out with a couple verses. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken to her these things. Now Luke chapter 24 verse 11 
says uh, that her words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. Okay. The summary is um, Jesus Christ will reveal himself to anyone who asks. He's revealed himself to many of us already in this room and we already hold on to him like Mary was depicted here. The thing you have to understand is that Jesus is calling you to take the message of his resurrection to the world. Even if they think you're crazy. Even if they're not going to respond to it. Even if they're not going to receive it. We need to be people who have had this experience with the Lord and deliver this message to the world. You guys, the world is literally scared to death of death. These people, every one of them here, sacrificed their lives for the message of the gospel. Why? Because they had seen Jesus resurrected. Jesus said, they're going to kill me, and I'll resurrect myself. And then he also said, and they're going to kill you, and I'll resurrect you. So they killed Jesus, and they were heartbroken. But then they saw Jesus resurrected. That alleviated them of all of the fear. Gone. No concern from that point forward. Can't pay my bills. Not concerned. I'm sick. Not concerned. The world hates me. Not concerned. Not worried at all. Why? Because the worst thing that could happen to them, right, is the best thing that could happen to them. They'd be in the presence of the Lord. They were unconcerned about this because of Jesus' resurrection. You need to embrace the resurrection to that degree. That it's your resurrection. Jesus Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. That you're unconcerned about anything that the world could throw at you. Anything the world could do to you. It it alleviates you of so much pressure. Amen? Amen. The Lord's resurrection. That's what we're holding on to. So, why don't we stand and we'll pray. You've heard the word fanatic, right? That's where we get the word fan, you know? Are you a fan of a certain sports team, right? Go to their game, paint half your face one color, the other half another color, just... A complete fanatic, right? Only wear their jersey, argue with the opposing team's jerseys. Just you're a fanatic. You're a fan. You need to be a fanatic for Jesus. Jesus. Addict. We use that word a lot, right? The root of addiction is adoration. You're addicted. You adore a certain drug, a certain chemical, a certain way of intoxication you need to be addicted to jesus see all of these things that we do are just worship disorders we're supposed to be adoring and worshiping and fanatical about jesus and instead in his place we put all the wrong things men and women and relationships and drugs and habits Let it be Jesus that you're enraptured with.
uh, he alleviates all the pressures that life could offer you, even death. Father, we thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for your resurrection. We pray that you would work that resurrection in our hearts and minds, that we would be fixed upon you, fascinated by you, adoring you, worshiping you, fanatical about you. Lord, help us to open our mouths and speak of your resurrection, to greet people regarding this day and what it means to us and what it could mean for them. Help us to be a messenger like Mary, who's willfully uh, going and sharing with a, a heart that is rent as she was crying, Lord, mourning the loss and the realization of your return. Help us to have that level of response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.